I feel, I feel like we're live on radio again because Jamie used to do that to me. Fine. Are we good? All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to pick it back up in uh, verse 15. We touched on it a little bit, but I just kind of wanted to use that uh, as a uh, springboard for tonight to kind of go over a little more in depth because it's such an important verse. Mr. Schofield, and those of you who know who he is, has a very famous Bible, Schofield Study Bible. This was a verse that when he saw this, you know, he, this was where he got his idea to rightly divide. And of course, he, he did that by the issue of dispensations. I'm not going to get into that tonight. Uh, but the doling out is all that really means, the separation of times and, and seasons. But this was what, what got him to looking in that direction. This particular verse, study to show thyself approved unto God as a workman who needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. This verse is a verse that every Christian and every pastor should have committed to memory. Paul told Timothy to study, that is to be earnest and diligent when he dives into the word of God. Laboring, it also means, some of your Bibles might have that. And laboring to show himself approved. And approved unto whom? And if you're taking notes, you need to underline unto God. You know, it's, it is a futile thing to seek the accolades of man or to seek their approval because as long as you're doing well, you'll have their approval. But once you do not do well, once, you, once you're not, and you can prove it with sports, to be honest with you, and I've mentioned this before. When a guy is running the ball and, and the, the touchdowns are, are, are coming, and you know, you could, you, they wouldn't want a better player. Let him have a bad season. And all of a sudden, you know, throw the bum out. They want, they're done with him, you see. So seeking man's approval, being a man pleaser, is not really a good idea because it's, it's, it, they're, they're too fickle. They're too fickle. People are fickle. One day they'll love you, next day they'll hate you. So don't do that. He says, study to show thyself approved unto God. Unto God. As a workman who needs not to be ashamed. I'm afraid... That on the day of judgment, many pastors and Bible teachers are going to be ashamed. Especially in the day that we're living. You know, because why? Well, they don't devour, they don't mull over, they don't meditate upon the Word of God, but they tend to take the root of least resistance or the root of least effort. And I was showing my wife, even on my own Facebook page, here was an advertisement, and I've mentioned this to you before, but I had never had it come up on my own page, where they were offering a subscription to pastors, Bible teachers, you know, for sermons, for illustrations. You know, they do the work for you, so, you know, you don't have to. Dear Jesus. But many people take them up on it, many pastors, and so the people suffer. Hmm. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Laboring to show thyself approved unto God. Digging into the word of God. Letting the Lord show you something about himself. Paul tells Timothy to show himself approved unto God as a workman who needs not rightly dividing the word of truth. 
Now this, this part of what he's saying, this is where theology comes in. And never be afraid of the word theology, gang. It simply means what? The study of God and his doctrine, really. It's important. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can teach that. Jesus said it was the Holy Spirit that will lead you into all truth. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through his word. You know, through his word. 2 Corinthians 5.10, you can just write it down. I'm going to read it for you. Very interesting passage. He's, Paul says there in Corinthians, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Every one of us who are in Christ are going to be examined at the mercy seat of Jesus. We're going to. Many years ago, my dad, who was uh, quite the philosopher he thought he was, but this way he was right about this. My dad said, son, if it's worth doing right it's worth doing right the first time because there's nothing more embarrassing than to do a job and then have your work examined by someone else and let them point out all the flaws or the shortcuts that you took. And there's going to be pastors and Bible teachers on the day of judgment who's going to have that happen. It's going to be embarrassing. Don't be ashamed. That's what he tells Timothy. As a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing. Rightly dividing the word of truth. A faith, you know, as Timothy was a faithful pastor, Paul's calling him to this duty, if you will. It was a duty to do that. He had to know what the word of God not only did say, but he had to understand what the word of God does not say how it was to be understood, and how it was not to be understood. It's not good enough, as many pastors do, to simply know some Bible stories. You know, one of the things that amazed me about Calvary Chapel, we have many, we have many, many Bibles, colleges. One of the biggest is in Murrieta, California. But I was there on a pastor's conference one year, and I remember them talking to one of the guys, and they were kind of on a campaign, if you will, kind of telling the pastors, you know, to send your people, you know, uh, let's get these guys enrolled and get them out there, uh, you know, starting some churches. But one of the things that they were illustrating for us and, and, and kind of driving home was that some of these guys had worked in other Bible colleges, and he said what he liked about Calvary Chapel was that the young men and women coming into that college most of them, if they had been a Christian for more than five or six years, had already been through the Word of God at least one time. Had already been through the whole body. And in their time there at the Bible school, they had to go through the entire New Testament and Old Testament with Pastor Chuck. And it was kind of funny because, you know, if you're there for three years, you know, there's a lot of commentary to go through if you're doing the whole Old Testament, New Testament. So what these guys would do is, of course, this was back in the day of cassettes. They would buy a multiple speed cassette player, and then they would put their headphones in, and they would simply turn the speed, the speed up. And we used to call it Chipmunk Chuck. 
And that's because that's what he sounded like when he was teaching. But they, would, but, they, but they would go through it. But my point being is that these young men and women who had been raised in a Bible-teaching church, when they got to Bible college, had already been through the Word of God at least one time. But, the, but these, these teachers who were teaching at the Bible college pointed out that some of them who had taught at other seminaries said it wasn't the case of the other places that they taught. That many of these guys come into seminary have never even cracked a Bible other than when they were sitting in the pew. Now listen. Study, Paul tells Timothy, to show thyself approved unto God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is why so many churches, unfortunately, are in the state that we are in. Why? Because there is such a lack of the Word of God. It's been relocated to the back burner, unfortunately. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, talking about the whole issue of the Bible. Here's what he said. He said, swords are meant to cut and hack and wound and kill with. And the word of truth is for pricking men in the heart and killing their sins. The Word of God is not committed to God's ministers to amuse men with its glitter, nor to charm them with the jewels of its hilt, but to conquer their souls for Jesus. That's what the Word of God does. And Charles Spurgeon said it very eloquently. Now, if the mandate is to rightly divide the Word of Truth, as Paul tells Timothy, it was because it is so easily to wrongly divide not everyone, my friends, gets it right. Or as some have said, not everyone cuts it straight. All you got to do is listen to the radio or to watch television or listen to some of the people to hear some of the crazy stuff that is being perpetrated upon the children of God in the, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ today. There's a right way to understand the Word of God and there's a wrong way to understand the Word of God. And it's the pastor's duty to work hard diligently to master the right interpretation. When the Bible's quoted, I think it's interesting, when you quote the Word of God, and this has happened to me many, many times over the years of my ministry and just as being a Christian, it's inevitable that you're, you're going to have somebody say, well, that's just your interpretation. I knew a man about 30-some-odd years ago, very close to me, and I never forget, and of course, this was... You know, just as I was a, a very, uh, I was still a very young man. But I remember, you know, so no, it had to have been, yeah, it was like 38 years ago. It was a long time ago. But I never forgot what he said. And I believed it up for a while, but it was totally wrong. Here's what he said. He said, you know, you take a verse out of the Bible and you give it to five different people and you'll get five different interpretations. Well, that very well may be true. But what you need to realize is that just because you get five different interpretations doesn't mean that there are five different interpretations. See, his implication was that we cannot know the right interpretation of that particular verse, whatever that verse might be. Therefore, we can't use it to point out anybody's problem. I remember this guy. He used to say, well, I read the Bible. I just don't do any of it. That was his uh, disclaimer. But really, he was trying to say that you can't know the truth, is what he was saying. 
So don't judge me with your Bible verse. This is basically what he was saying. One of the best examples that I can always point to, and it, because it's so easy, of wrongly interpreting the Bible is listening to anybody who does eisegetical teaching. And if you've caught our study on that, then you know what I'm talking about. Eisegetical teaching is simply topical teachings which take a verse and basically uh, you, you take a topic and then you search the Bible for verses that seem like it backs that up and then you simply preach it that way. Exegetical teaching, which is what we practice, and that is you know, exegetically going through the Bible expositionally, and allowing the Word of God to interpret itself, to give you what it means. Uh, the other way produces a lot of error. Why? Because not many men, to be honest with you, if they're not familiar with, with exegetical teaching, if they're, not, if they're not expositors, they don't really have the faculties or the ability to do an eisegetical. There's nothing wrong with eisegetical teaching as long as it's done properly and within its context. But so often it's not. And so it's such a great example when you see people doing it because most of the time those verses are taken out of context or they have misapplied context to it and they just don't have any power. And before I, I go ahead and go on to, to the next, I just want to show you a verse. You can write this down. Because I want to give you an example of what it is to rightly divide. And, it, and, and I, I was just thinking of a verse. You know, what, was a, what would be a good verse that's so misunderstood and so easy to understand? And the one that jumped out to me was Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And of course, you know the verse, I, I no doubt, it says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Now you see, when Jesus said, Judge not, that you be not judged, he was not giving his hearers the idea that you had no right to judge the behavior of someone else's, you know, of anyone else. He wasn't saying that. Because if that was what he was saying, Jesus himself broke that very commandment more times than you could count. Because Jesus often pointed out to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees and to those around him when their lives were not right with God. Or they were doing things that were contrary to the word of God. He often did that. So that's not what he was saying. This is why context, remember any text taken from its context becomes a proof text for a pretext. This is just a, a little adage that I've always adopted and I always give it out to you guys because you need to remember that context, context, context. It means everything. And it's absolutely essential in his understanding, you know, Matthew 7, 1. Because in its context, in order to get the right interpretation, all you have to do is read verse 2. Because in verse 2, Jesus says, For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. You see, the correct understanding of judge not lest you be judged is not that you can't point out someone's actions that are right, or, or excuse me, that are wrong in the sight of God, but that you cannot judge someone according to a standard that you yourself are not willing to be judged by. That's what Jesus was saying. You can't judge somebody hypocritically. You can't judge somebody unfairly. This is what that context means. And so there is a right interpretation. There's a right dividing of the word of truth. And most of the time you can have it by simply reading on. You know, always use the 20-20 method if you don't understand a verse. 20 verses before, 20 verses after, and usually within that will be the context of what's being taught. And you probably won't get duped into something that's not being taught correctly. So, and just as a coup de grace, I'll throw it out there. You can write it down. 2 Peter 1.20. Anytime somebody tells you, well, that's your interpretation. What's Peter say? 
Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. What does that mean? It means the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. If you didn't get it the first time, read it again. If you didn't get it the second time, read it again. Then pray. Pray again. Read it again. Read it again until the Holy Spirit shows you what it means. And read lots of it. But keep going. Don't just listen to somebody who said something and you suck it up as though it's truth unless you can back it up with the Word of God. Be a Berean. This is what Paul told us to do. Look at verse 16. He says, But shun vain, profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker. Some of your Bibles might say as cancer. Of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. There are things that can take the focus off the gospel and the word of God. And Paul refers to these things as profane and vain babblings. They're called profane because they're unholy, in contrast to the holiness of God's word. They're vain because they're usually things of men. And even though people might enjoy hearing them, they have no lasting value. They're simply man's opinions, man's teachings, polls that are taken, opinion polls, or whatever strategies and programs. Paul calls these profane and vain babblings compared to the Word of God. When these things become the focus of the message from the pulpit, it will increase to more ungodliness. And Paul says that their message spreads like a cancer. Some of your Bibles, I mean, like I said, it, it, it spreads like, it, and it is true. You know, though Paul called their message profane and vain, it appears that it was being picked up by a lot of people. It was becoming very uh, popular. People wanted to hear it. And Paul says it was going to spread, just like a cancer does. It has no life in it. It only brings death and corruption to its hearers. The problem with cancer is that it spreads fast and captures its audience. And I do think it's interesting here that he mentions, you know, once again, by name, Hymenius and Philetus. Now, this is the second time Paul mentions Hymenius. And the first time, of course, was in chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul said that he, was, he delivered him unto Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. But here Paul adds Philetus as one of his cohorts and, and presents them together as false teachers whose message was full of profane and vain babblings. And apparently, according to the text as you read it, their message was somewhat popular, as I said, because it spread so quickly. But Paul said that they had strayed concerning the truth, which is an indication, I think, that they had started off on the right foot, but they just had gotten messed up somewhere down the road. But they strayed from the correct position. And obviously, he says that their false teaching was pertaining to the millennial kingdom of God because they were saying that the resurrection was past already. That's interesting to me because there are people today who believe that. Do you realize that there's a whole group of them that believe that you're living in the millennial kingdom right now? Jehovah Witnesses believe you're living in the, in the millennial kingdom of Jesus because Jesus actually already returned. You know that, right? He returned in 1904. Yeah. You didn't know that? Yeah, he's actually got a place. It's a secret place. It's in New York. 
You didn't know that? And he's already subdued Satan. Yeah. Now, I'm a little disappointed because I thought during, you know, because during the Millennial Kingdom, it's, it's not quite as good as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it seems to be a little, it's disappointing because Satan still seems to have quite a, a hand in things. But yeah, they, they believe that and they teach that. And so it's not, you know, it wasn't just these guys who were teaching this craziness, but it's prevalent even today. But this was what they were saying, was that the resurrection was past already, that somehow they were already living, and, and there was no hope of another. Now, what's the problem with that? Because, you know, we were talking today, and a discussion came up, you know, about the essentials, essential doctrines, and there are essential things that we need to believe. And we'll talk about that some other time. I'm not going to do it tonight. But there are essentials. But I don't think anybody has ever added the resurrection of the, you know, the body. I mean, Jesus' resurrection, yes. That's an essential. You have to believe that. But I don't think anybody's ever added the normal, you know, the, the believer's resurrection to that essential. Because there are some interesting beliefs on that. But is that essential for salvation? Well, Paul chips it in there. He just throws it in. He says that these guys were overthrowing, you see, the faith of some. I think that's interesting. Hmm. And he mentions this one false doctrine connected with these guys. Overthrowing the faith. You know, most Bible students and teachers unanimously agree that undoubtedly this was not the only error that these guys were making. And I've, I said that in the last chapter. I mean, they were teaching stuff, mixing grace and works and those kind of crazy things. It wasn't the only doctrine, but, but Paul focuses in on this one. Hmm. Strange beliefs. And, and, and when you make this fundamental error, it's no doubt that it's going to lead to more ungodliness and more error until the point where sometimes you know, they get to the point where they abandon Jesus Christ and the truth altogether. You know, there's some very famous pastors out there who teach some very crazy things. And people just listen to them. And I see them all the time, you know, and, and I, you know, on my Facebook page, at one time I think there was like six, 7,000 people. I don't know what I've got that down to now because I've deleted so many people because I just don't have time to correct craziness. I really don't. And people will post stuff on that. Most of the time I just go unfollow. You know, because these guys, you know, especially people who do not believe in the, in the Trinity, who do not believe or understand that Jesus Christ is the, is the Son of God and the second, you know, in the Trinity. I mean, I just don't have time for stuff like that. But these guys, they, they teach this stuff and people just suck it up without comparing it to Scripture. And these guys overthrow the faith of some. This is what Paul's talking about. I've heard many people say, you know, in order to justify listening to some of these guys, well, you know, you've got to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. I've heard that a million times. I just chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Because I ask them, I say, man, you do realize this guy teaches some pretty crazy stuff, right? Well, you chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Really? I heard a pastor say one time, it's, the problem is, is that they're, they're overthrowing the faith of some, and some people very well may choke to spiritual death on the bones that you're spitting out. Paul says these guys' stuff, it eats like a canker. It's vain and profane, you know. When do we avoid it? Paul said that they had overthrown the faith of some, so we shouldn't require, I think, 
that everyone be led astray by a preacher or a teacher in, when we, in order for us to stop listening to them. He says these guys had overthrown the faith of some. And he calls them, you know, false teachers. This is what he's telling Timothy. You know, this was of the sort of Hymenius and Philetus because these guys have erred from the faith. And they're overthrowing the faith of some. Avoid these guys. You know, don't listen to these guys. This is what he's telling him. Look at verse 19. He says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Now, this is the cool part about what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, these, these false teachers are going to rise up. They're going to come. You can't help it. And some people are going to suffer because of it. There's no doubt about that. There's going to be some people who are going to be sucked in by it. It's unfortunate. But nevertheless, Paul says, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in 2 Kings. And it's about a young man whose name is Josiah. I love the story of Josiah. Young man who was eight years old when he took the throne. Eight. Just a kid. And by the time he's 18 years old, he starts looking around and he sees that the temple is in vast disrepair. People were just letting it go to pot. And so he sends to the high priest and he says, you know what, tell me how much silver it would take. What's it going to take for us to refurbish the temple? And so they start the restoration. And Hilkiah, the high priest, while they're doing the restoration, he finds the book of the law. The, the story is kind of funny, but it's sad at the same time. Now think about this, gang. The high priest is helping with the restoration, and he finds the book of the law. Now here's my question. Now the people would gather in the temple. And they would stand and listen to the high priest teach for hours on end. What was he teaching up to that point? Because he didn't have the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, I'm sure it was parts of the Talmud and other things that they had, traditions. I'm sure he preached about a lot of things and the people accepted it. They accepted it. But when they found the book of the law, he says, take this to the king. Because it was commanded of every king that sat on the throne of Israel that they were to make a handwritten copy of the law themselves. Every king was to do that. He takes it to Josiah, and this 18-year-old boy begins to read the words of this book. And he's so distraught, it says he rent his clothes. And here's what he said. He tells the high priest, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all which is written concerning us. The interesting part of this story is that when you research the name of Josiah, I just, I was a young, young, young minister at the time and I, and I loved word searches and I realized very early on that as you study through the Word of God, there's nothing written in that book that's just written for no reason. Everything means something. So when you see a word, even if you think you understand it, look it up. Get your strongs. Dig into it. Because when you look at the Hebrew, Josiah's name means the foundation 
of God. And what did he restore to the children of Israel? He restored the word of God. Now, in his reign, some people might say he went a little amok, got a little radical, a little legalistic maybe. I'm not going to get into that. I just love the fact that he restored the foundation, the word of God, back to the children of Israel. Because the word of God is the foundation. Of course, in here's what Peter would say even when you think of it. This is in 1 Peter 1.19. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereon you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawns and the day star arise in your hearts. And of course, Peter says this right before that. He's talking about the Lord of glory, that we saw him. We held him with our hands, you know. We, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. Yet, he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. The word of God is more sure than an eyewitness. This is what Peter said. How serious should we take it? Very, very serious. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The word of God is the foundation of the Lord, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Thus he says, the foundation of the Lord is sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. I'm so thankful for that tonight. If anything, I make you shout hallelujah. It's a fact that the Lord knows them that are his. I don't know whose are his. Because often I look at some of the sheep and they look like goats. But you know what? There's probably times when I did too. But my desire, my heart's desire, is to be what God has called me to be. You know, the discussion came up today. And there's no, there's no doubt. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I don't care whether you're a, a pastor or a pew warmer. If you've never had a falling out, if you've never fallen, your time is coming. Which is why the Word of God says that even a righteous man, if he falls seven times, yea, he will rise again. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And though he fall, he will not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. It is God that holds us up. It is the Lord because he knows them that are his. And I'm so thankful about that. I don't always know. And it's hard for me to determine that sometimes because all I can judge is what a man tells me. Man says, I know the Lord. Okay. But I have to admit, you know, the fact is, he says that this seal that Paul's talking about, he says, that, you know, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And, you see that, and let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You see, it's a two-sided seal. Now, we can know ourselves. You know, John wrote, 1 John, I've written these things unto you that believe on the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. In Romans, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But there's not only the election, according to the verse that we're looking at, but there's sanctification, and it comes along with it. Sanctification, you know what that is, right? It's being set aside for a holy use. So it's a two-sided coin, if you will, this seal that, God, that Paul's talking about.
The Lord knows them that are his, yes. But he says also, and let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's a choice, you see, to a child of God. Because sin will have no dominion over you. Now it's a choice. No doubt people make the choice to do things that they shouldn't do. And they wind up paying the consequences of it. I can vouch for this in my own life. Jesus said, you sow to the flesh of the flesh, you will reap corruption. Sow to the spirit of the spirit, you will reap life everlasting. This is a truth. It's no doubt that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. This is what it says. And that's an eternal thing. It's, it's, once it's done, it was done. And he did it for the whole world. It only applies to those that believe. But it has been done once and for all. So sin has no dominion. It has been taken care of. Howbeit in this life, sin does have temporal consequences on this side of heaven. And we need to warn people about it. But there is that aspect of sanctification. There is that desire to be set aside and to be used by the Lord. During ancient times, and I'll close with this. When the king had commissioned a great statuary or monument to be erected, the chief mason would, would go to the quarry. And he would search diligently within that quarry for the perfect stone that matched what he was going to have done with it. What the use of it was going to be. So he would look for the striations of its strengths and all the things that pertain. And he would pick that and then he would mark it. And the first mark that he would make said that it belonged to the king. And then they would set the date for its removal. And then the second mark would say, well, it was going to be removed from the standard rocks or the common rocks that were from around it. This is kind of what Paul is talking about here when he says, that, you know, the, the Lord has this seal that he knows them that are his. And let all those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. When he says that name the name of Christ, I want you to think of a marriage vow. Because really, that's what it is. You know, in our country, when a person gets married, especially you ladies know what I'm talking about, you took the name of your husband. Now, you didn't have to. Some women don't anymore. And over in Europe, and we have many, many relatives over in, in, in Belgium. They don't do that over there. It's kind of weird, <laughs> I have to admit, because they all keep their name. But when Paul says this here, let all those who name the name of Christ, it's kind of a marriage thing. Because once we've taken it, because it's kind of entering into a marriage covenant with God through Jesus Christ. It's a whole other sermon. But the fact is, is that taking his name, we have claimed the name of Christ. He says, and if you've done that, because you are a child of God, because God knows them that are his, you have the ability to set yourself. We even sang a song tonight, I choose to be holy. I choose to live a life that is representative of a servant of God. Now, there's times when we don't, we haven't, we fail, we trip, we fall. But you know what? The Lord is able to restore. God is able to bring us back into that place of standing. But it is a two-sided seal, knowing that the Lord knows them that are his. And let all those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. This is what Paul was getting across to Timothy. Because even in the midst of crazy teaching, the Lord knows them that are His. Even though some may fall, the Lord knows them that are His. 
even when heresies are flowing and there's a lack of teaching, the Lord knows them that are His. The Lord knows them that are His. The Lord knows. And I bank on that. I trust in that. I'm clinging to that. The Lord knows. I hope that you are tonight. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement to study and to be in your word, Lord. I thank you for it, Father, because it has been life to my bones. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I know that it does not return void. And so, Lord, I pray for those who will hear this message, Lord, Father, that they will glean from it all that you've done for us. And they will be drawn to you, Lord, through your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would go beforehand, that he would open hearts and eyes, Lord, Father, to Jesus Christ and their need for him. We love you so much. We just ask for your blessing on your people. In Jesus' name, amen.